Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies. I'm Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Every month or so, we interview the author or editor of a new book in Genocide Studies. This month, I'm pleased to have Lindahl Ryan and Philip Dwyer on the show. They've collaborated twice in the last couple of years on works that look at the history of massacres in human civilization. First, in an excellent collection of essays titled Theaters of Violence, Massacre, Mass Killing, and Atrocity Throughout History, published by Berghahn Books. A year later or so, at least if you go by publication dates, the two co-edited a special issue of Journal of Genocide Research dedicated to the study of massacres in the period from the late 1700s through the early 1800s. Each of these is excellent, full of essays that provoke, stimulate, and inform. Each is a model of comparative history. I recommend both of them highly. So with that, welcome to the show, Lindahl and Philip. Thank you for for having us. Delighted to be here. Wonderful. Uh, I'd like to start by asking each of you uh, just to say a little bit about who you are and how you came to be an academic who studies the history of massacres and and, and, and within the broader topics and field that you address. So, Lindahl, why don't we start with you? Okay. Uh, I'm not sure how I became an academic, but I went to university. I'd always been interested in history. Uh, when I finished my first degree, I became a research assistant to one of Australia's leading Australian historians, Professor Manning Clark, who was writing uh, a six-volume history of Australia at the time, and I did quite a lot of research on volumes two and three, which covered the uh, early 1800s. From there, I went I became uh, an Australian historian and I was most interested in uh, regional history and I wrote a a PhD thesis on the history of the Tasmanian Aborigines and I kind of remained interested in that field ever since. I published a book on the history of the Tasmanian Aborigines in the early 1980s But at that stage, I was more interested in Aboriginal resistance to colonisation and I was more interested in the survival of the Tasmanian Aborigines because I believed that they had become extinct. So I was more interested in the historical experiences of the Tasmanian Aborigines under British colonisation. And it was only in the last 10 years or so that I've changed my focus on how the colonists tried to wipe out the Tasmanian Aborigines and the role of massacre in that process. And I guess that's when I became interested in modern work on massacre, how one can investigate massacre because I discovered that most massacres were carried out in secret and people weren't expected to know about them. So I think that's where Philip and I began to intersect and maybe Philip can carry on with his story. Please. Um, So I I was born on the other side of uh, the Australian continent in a town called Perth and I I was determined as a young man to escape uh, the confines of that small town and uh, decided to go to Paris where I eventually ended up at the Sorbonne and uh, one of my professors there, a man by the name of uh, Jean Toulard, was the uh, French uh, specialist on Napoleon at the time. So long story short, I eventually, I did my studies in France and then I did some studies in Berlin and specialised in the 18th century and eventually ended up, I was lucky enough to get a job first in Scotland and then in Newcastle where I basically came back home after about 10 to 12 years of uh, traveling around Europe, um, but decided also to write a biography of Napoleon uh, because I believe that there hadn't been 
a scholarly uh, biography of him done since the 1950s and it was time to rethink uh, his place in history a little. And it was in writing, so the two volumes are out basically, mm-hmm. both mm-hmm. with uh, Yale University Press or the second volume is coming out next month. It was in writing the first volume that um, I became aware of the types of atrocities that the French had committed in conquering Europe and especially at this stage in northern Italy and in Egypt. They got me interested uh, more specifically in the dynamics of massacre and, and more generally in, I guess, what you could call all street of violence. And uh, it's in studying violence and massacre during what was, after all, a period of uh, European occupation by the French that uh, I had, you know, was obliged to read more broadly to figure out uh, what what exactly it was massacre and how it uh, differed from one period to another. And then, so hence. Uh, my collaboration with Lyndall when I realised that she too was working on a, a very similar field that made sense for us and since we're both in the same university to uh, collaborate on uh, larger projects. And how did the book emerge out of this shared interest? We, The Theatre of the Violence uh, book uh, is based on a conference uh, that was held in Uh, Newcastle in 2010 uh, on the massacre in history and it was an attempt to revisit a subject that had already been uh, the object of a number of works including Mark Levine's book uh, The Massacre Mm -hmm. in History uh, which had appeared about 10 years before uh, so we were we were thinking that uh, lots of new uh, scholars were working in the field, and we wanted to, I, I guess, bring these people together to find out uh, what new research was being carried out and what uh, different approaches uh, were being undertaken by these people. So the book came out of out of that conference. And Linda, I wonder maybe we could start by thinking about this book. If if you could say something about how the study of massacres has emerged as a field and how it intersects or perhaps doesn't with, with fields like genocide studies or military histories. Military history, sorry. Yes. Mm, that's a good, good question. For me, massacre, I was interested in... Uh, as an Australian historian, there's been a there was quite a debate about ten years ago about just how violent the Australian colonial frontier was, mm-hmm. and there had been what was known uh, a debate known as the Aboriginal History Wars, in which one side argued that there was very little violence on the Australian colonial frontier and. Uh, the Aborigines had really simply faded away in, in the aftermath of colonisation. There had always been a group of historians who believed, who argued that this was not the case, that there had been considerable violence and that some of that violence included frontier massacres of Aborigines. My task was to try and find a, a method of investigating or interrogating the known sources in uh, about to determine whether this was the case or not and I selected a series of incidents that could have been that could have been uh, considered as massacre so I became very interested in what a massacre was how you define it how do you uh, interrogate the sources and how can you draw conclusions and I was looking for perhaps a, a way of determining the characteristics of massacre on the colonial frontiers not just in Australia but in other white settler societies such as South Africa, Canada, the United States and so on. But the scholar whose work I found most helpful for me was Jacques Semelin, who is a historical sociologist based in Paris. And he 
became very interested in massacre following the murder in Srebrenica in 1995. He pointed out that many European scholars were shocked that something like a massacre could occur on the European continent uh, at the end of the 20th century. And he held um, a symposium that continued on for some years in which he drew together a number of scholars across the disciplines from the past to the present to try and work out just what Africa was and, and what its characteristics were. He began to publish uh, some of his findings in the Journal of Genocide Research from about the year 2000 and there was a series of articles over the following years and I found his work incredibly useful in trying to devise a method to investigate massacre on the Australian colonial frontier. And in that regard, I think that for me, uh, I became very interested in, in the idea of massacre. I was not so interested in the concept of genocide because in Australia, genocide is a very hot topic. And I found that when I discussed it with my students in Australian history courses, that their eyes simply glazed over. That genocide was such a big word. It was bringing what had happened in Nazi Germany to the Australian continent in a way that seemed just too too difficult, too hard. It was a, a term, it was a blanket term that seemed to cut off any further understanding of the Australian frontier. But massacre, they were interested in. Uh, you could define massacre, I could assist them in conducting their own research on particular incidents of massacre. There were a number of highly contested incidents. Were they massacres or were they not? And in carrying out their own research, the students could uh, develop new understandings and engage in a discussion in a way that they couldn't do with genocide. So I think I'll pass on to Philip now. I, yes, I came, being an 18th century person, I never really had to reflect on genocide and not being an Australian specialist, I wasn't uh, caught up in the debates that were raging in Australia in the 80s and 90s. Um, but I've had to tackle uh, genocide uh, in dealing with a massacre, because a number of uh, historians that have contributed both to both collections uh, would consider themselves to be genocide uh, scholars. And I found um, genocide scholars on the whole uh, to be quite uh, proprietal when it came to uh, mass uh, killings. And there was a tendency, as Lindell has suggested, mm -hmm. to use the term uh, genocide uh, as a sort of blanket uh, definition to cover just about every form of mass killing, <clears throat> excuse me, especially on the colonial frontier, uh, in, in just about every kind of context. And I found that uh, both frustrating and, and quite inadequate because in, in using the term, um, there is a tendency to not explore the detail or, or the context of particular killings uh, uh, any further. Um, so I'm, I'm a little critical of the use of the term uh, genocide or the way it has been used in the past to denote just about every form of mass killing that you can possibly imagine. And I think a distinction, what we're trying to do, I guess, is, is draw a clear distinction between acts of massacre and mass killings, because we think there too there is a, a, a distinction to be drawn on the one hand and genocide on the other. And we've argued in both the special issue and in the collection of essays uh, that massacres uh, can occur without uh, genocidal intent, but that for, for genocide to occur, there must be massacre. Yeah, one of the things I liked about both of, both both of the volumes was the the care you took in defining terms, and so you've kind of laid out part of 
that definition there. Can you elaborate? What? How, how would you define acts of massacres or acts of massacre? Well, in my case, on the colonial frontier, uh, an act of massacre is the uh, killing of a group of undefended people uh, with an intent to either kill the entire group or to bring them to submission. On the Australian colonial frontier, uh, a range of historians have now appeared to agree that the killing of six or more people, undefended people, in uh, one single uh, uh, act uh, is a frontier massacre. And that usually uh, the group that will be that has been attacked might be a group of up to, say, 20 people. So in killing six people, you're taking the heart out of that group and rendering that group pretty much unable to continue as they were. And I think that's been very important in understanding massacre because most of my students consider massacre would be uh, the killing of, you know, 30 or 40 or hundreds even because in Australia when we hear about massacres it's usually in relation say to Srebrenica where we know you know many hundreds were killed or perhaps even thousands so it's sort of trying to bring the word massacre into a more uh, intimate uh, uh, relationship we also found that with frontier massacres that the perpetrators and the victims usually know each other or knew each other and that it's uh, it's a a much more intimate uh, act rather than this kind of mass killing of people where the perpetrators uh, knew the enemy but did not know the enemy on a personal in a personal situation so Massacre, frontier massacres in Australia are a much more intimate engagement and perhaps more frightening and scary as a result of that rather than the result of mass technology or something like that. One of the problems that we had uh, was discovering that there was no accepted definition of uh, (laughs) massacre. Um, I mean, there is a legal definition of genocide, which a lot of people use, um, but that's that's not the case uh, for massacre. So that when the International uh, Court in The Hague, for example, uh, has um, someone before them who's accused of uh, of uh, committing an, uh, a war crime, it usually falls under that heading. That is, it's a crime against humanity. There's so that even they don't have a legal definition of what actually constitutes a massacre. And of course, that can vary enormously from country to country and from period to period, this, this, the, um, the uh, Guatemala Human Rights Commission in the United States, for example, which I think uh, ran in the 1980s, decided that there had to be a minimum of three people killed at any one mm. time for it to be described as a massacre. But massacres usually, we, I think Lyndall and I would agree that massacres mm. usually have to take place over a short period of time and in, over a particular geographical space. That is, they don't occur over uh, weeks or months or years. That kind of killing better fits the definition of mass killing. Mm. Then there is the, um, I, I guess, the dilemma of what we call an individual who is killed uh, by mm. a mob. Uh, and as you know, in the United States, of course, lynching uh, was mm-hmm. reasonably mm-hmm. widespread in uh, certain states from the middle of the 19th century right through to the 1950s and 60s. Um, and, we, and, and some historians have, have described those killings as massacre. I think we prefer to, to describe a mob turning on a particular individual as rather a lynching or a murder because usually the mob knows who that individual is. There is an identity attached to that particular individual and that's not usually the case with massacre. There may have been previous interaction between two groups uh, before massacres occurred, as in the former Yugoslavia, for example, and as is no doubt taking place in Syria today, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily know those people as individuals. 
Uh, but there is an intimacy, as Lindell has already stated, in the act of uh, killing attached to massacre. And the uh, example I, I often like to use is that there literally has to be sort of you know sweat on the brow uh, for massacre to occur, which is why I tend to uh, shy away from bombings, describing bombings as massacres. Uh, because they're too distant and too anonymous. But uh, I think it really has to be up close and personal, in other words. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm intrigued. Lyndall, you said something, uh, and Philip echoed it in a different way, about about the idea that there is something more frightening or more, um, more disturbing about these kind of massacres because they are people with whom you are familiar or perhaps know reasonably well or who have in, who, who you've interacted with already. Um, and I'm wondering, I'm teaching a class in comparative genocides now, and I'm not sure my students would agree. And I'm wondering if you could say more about that sense of, of disturb, how, uh, about why you feel that this is so disturbing. I guess I'm talking most specifically about frontier massacres mm-hmm. on, uh, on, on the colonial frontier mm-hmm. in white settler societies. And the frontiers in those white settler societies are usually quite remote from major towns and villages and so on. And so on the frontier, you're, you're having perhaps white stockmen and settlers needing uh, some interaction with the local indigenous peoples, whether it's in California or whether it's in Victoria or whether it's in South Africa, uh, to perhaps uh, survive in the first instance. And then uh, it's uh, uh, usually a, a frontier massacre uh, is usually the res- is often the result of. Lo- uh, interaction over perhaps a period of months or even years where each side has got to know, each group has got to know each other quite well and then some incident occurs which which uh, makes the colonisers believe it's time that they had to assert their authority. And so it is intimate in that way that they know the people that they've decided to kill. Now, if you're taking a military history approach, you have a defined enemy, there's a rules of engagement, you don't necessarily know them, ter- you may not know them at all, they are simply defined as the enemy. I guess uh, when you're killing people that you know very well, or, or, or you know reasonably well, or whom you know, then there seems to be uh, a kind of uh, a kind of breaking of a of a sense of humanity that may have been developed between the two groups, and in that sense, my students have often reacted, saying it must be very difficult to kill people in that way, people that you know in that way. Now we know that most homicides are usually um, about people that that are known and that makes a homicide a a rather frightening uh, act and I guess in that way perhaps frontier massacres are more more associated or more connected in that way than perhaps a more uh, objectified killing that might be in a military context. And I, I guess that's the difference between genocide and uh, massacre in some respects. Genocide implies that there is a kind of uh, bureaucratized, mm. um, structural, um, you know, technocratic and industrialized processes yeah. involved, and possibly not always, but even if we look at uh, the Armenian genocide, for example, which took place over a number of months, um, it's, uh, I guess there was a distance there between the perpetrator and the victim that you might not necessarily find 
in certain uh, massacres. And if you look at the massacres that took place, if we talk about the Holocaust, for example, and we describe particular events that took place within the Holocaust massacre, as was the case when certain ethnicities turned on Jewish populations in Eastern Europe, in Poland, and in Lithuania and, and Latvia, those, those perpetrators knew their victims, basically. Mm. It's interesting that one of, I, I guess, even when people live with each other over uh, generations, once somehow a group of people is deemed the other and is marginalized for whatever reason, whether it's politicized uh, racial ideology or religion, then it creates a situation where it's possible for the dominant group to turn on the, um, I, I guess, the other, which mm -hmm. is in often a minority, and to eliminate them in certain circumstances. Mm. Um, and I guess it's the, uh, what we are trying to understand is the dynamics behind that need to eliminate the other as a group and the mechanisms behind the actual act of killing itself. We can come back and talk about individual psychology and, and what it takes for a person to kill another, whether they know them or not. But um, I, I guess the, the bottom line is that there is there is a sense that the the other represents a threat to the group and this and therefore must be eliminated, whether that's done out of fear or hatred, can vary from situation to situation, I think. Mm. Perhaps I could uh uh, talk a little bit about the essay uh, by Annie Pullman on the Indonesian massacres in the 1960s. Yeah, please. Uh, and uh, you know the the, the sort of uh, and the way in which uh, those massacres were carried out, in which a, a new regime is trying to assert control in Indonesia in that period. And Annie wrote about how these were massacres carried out by particular people within villages in Indonesia where the people knew each other and had known each other over a very long period of time, if not generations. And there's been a, uh, since Annie has published her essay, a new film has emerged, a documentary film, where the filmmaker interviewed some of the perpetrators of those massacres who were still alive, who were very proud of what they had done. It's quite a chilling film, a very important one, but again, it sort of uh, is a very good example of the intimacy of these kinds of massacres. And while it was uh, about eliminating particular groups uh, within those villages, it wasn't about... Uh, the genocide of all of those groups. It was rather a way of bringing those groups who were seen as dissidents and as the other, of bringing them under control. And uh, the fact that those perpetrators, or some of those perpetrators, were very proud of what they had done, I found quite chilling. So that intimacy uh, means that the sense that they had kind of appeared to lose a sense of community at that moment, I find very interesting. And I think I can make some analogies there with some of the frontier massacres in Australia. And the other I, think, I think the other interesting thing is to look at the perpetrator and, the, and not only why they commit uh, those acts of killing it in particular circumstances, but what the, uh, the legacies and the aftermath of that killing are not only yeah. on the victims, but also on the perpetrators. And, it's, and that can vary enormously from, from uh, country to country and from uh, individual to individual. Um, I recently saw Ben Kiernan, who's a professor of uh, genocide studies at Yale University, talk about an interview he conducted with a member of the Khmer Rouge, uh, who was accused of having killed a couple of hundred people uh, by rifle uh, over a, a period of days, and Ben asked him, "So, what is it? What's it like to kill all those people?" And the um, this member of the Khmer Rouge simply pointed to his shoulder and says, "It hurts." And he's only he's only uh, uh, I guess. Um, 
he was talking about a physical pain rather than any kind of psychological uh-huh. remorse. But then you compare that to this is the really fascinating documentary called Four Hours in Me Lie, which was done by the BBC in the 1980s, in which they interviewed uh, GIs who had actually committed acts of killing in My Lai in Vietnam. I think that was in 68. I'm not mm. sure off mm-hmm. the top of my head. Mm. And there's one African-American uh, GI who's describing what he did, including committing acts of what we call acts of atrocity, that is mutilating bodies after killing them, who was obviously uh, very uh, traumatized uh, by what he had done and found it incredibly to live with himself. In fact, he had suicide a number of times before the documentary and succeeded in killing himself a few years after the documentary. So people react in different ways to, the perpetrators react in different ways. They've done some, some have no remorse and accept, accept it and are even, as Lindell says, are proud of it and others simply cannot live with themselves for having done these things. Yeah, I'm... I think what 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 you're saying now, and then and and what you've wrote is really a nice reminder and corrective to a lot of of, of genocide studies as it emerged in the late 20th century. It's I think one of the things we've learned as we've kind of moved away from viewing the Holocaust as as the prototype of genocide, or or even as we've gotten a d- deeper understanding of the Holocaust and and how it was actually conducted is is how many of these killings were face-to-face and how many of these killings were done by people who knew each other or lived in the same town or were members of the same community rather than being uh, what my students anyway tend to think of with the Holocaust as, as kind of impersonal mass industrial killings. Yes, yes. I think that's a very important distinction to make. And we realize the Holocaust is a very important area of specific study. I think it does have particular characteristics which are not necessarily the same characteristics that we find in other forms of mass Mm -hmm. killing. And I think that looking in different historical periods, uh, I think Philip and I feel it's very important to draw out the particular characteristics of each particular period, each particular area, uh, each particular forms of killing because we need to understand what this is all about and to perhaps learn from it and to point out their their distinctiveness so that we can better understand who we are as human beings and that uh, the Holocaust is one horrible, frightening, terrifying, perhaps the most frightening moment in all of our human history. But it's not exactly the same as all other areas and times of mass killing. So let me jump jump on what you said, because uh, the, one of the, the distinguishing characteristics of, of, of the edited volume, the, the book, is precisely the really broad chronological spread uh, running all the way from the Greeks uh, classical Greece in, in Athens all the way to Afghanistan in the 21st century. And I'm wondering to what extent are, are there broad lessons you can draw from this that are applicable over time? Or is the lesson, in fact, that there aren't really broad lessons and each case is distinct and needs to be contextualized appropriately? Perhaps I can uh, jump in here, Kelly. From uh, when we put the essays together, we were very interested to find that the Greeks, for example, were very reluctant to acknowledge that they actually engaged in massacre, that they certainly carried them out, but they didn't really, they weren't very open about it. Whereas the Romans, particularly with Julius Caesar, were very open about massacre and that they conducted them in a very open way and they wrote about them in a very open way. And then we have a bit of a leap into uh, Middle Ages and then into the the English Civil War period. And we find again that massacre uh, is not widely spoken about. It happens, it's conducted, but it's not written about, it's not acknowledged, Uh, the perpetrators do not speak about it. So we found that there, apart from the period of Julius Caesar, that massacres were not seen to be a very acceptable form of 
military behaviour. Idea of killing undefended people, undefended groups of people, is not a good look in Western history, and it isn't really an. It is not accept. It's not really an acceptable form of military engagement. And when I began to get involved in the study of massacre, when I spoke with my colleagues who were military historians, they simply said, "We don't study massacre." history because we're more interested in the engagement of two armed groups who might be opposing each other. We're not really interested in studying how one armed group will go in and kill an unarmed group of people. So massacre, would, I think, within Western history, uh, is not seen as a very acceptable form of military engagement. And it is interesting that Julius Caesar appears to have been the only person who was very open about it. And even, I think, as Philip would acknowledge, Napoleon never really acknowledged uh, massacre. It was something that was a, a byproduct of something else. So, yes, there were some overall um, findings that we... Uh, that we that we concluded about looking at uh, acts of massacre from the ancient world to the present, and it is still very interesting that on the whole massacres have to be uh, investigated to find out whether they actually happened. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem to have changed very much. I guess, if, uh, it's, I guess it's very difficult to draw general conclusions from such a vast uh, expanse sure. of uh, history, but I guess what we were trying to point out uh, is that uh, massacre is not really an aberration. It's part and parcel of uh, human history and can be found uh, in just about every uh, period of history across uh, cultures that you care to look at and occurred much more frequently the historians uh, recognized until uh, recently. I guess the other thing that all of these massacres have in common, well, I, the motives, of course, differ from, from uh, period to period, so that in the Middle Ages and even into the early modern period, massacres can often be uh, carried out for religious purposes, but increasingly the motivations for massacres became uh, secular, if not ideological. Mm-hmm. The other... I think we can draw is that wherever there is an occupation army that interacts with the civilian population, Mm. massacres will inevitably occur, Mm. no matter what the period, and we've seen this occur quite recently in Afghanistan and Iraq as well, and that... um, I, there is one other conclusion that I wanted to draw, but it, which is skipped <laughs> through my mind. Um, in settler societies, wherever there is a foreign other that uh, covets uh, resources uh, that are occupied by ethnic uh, mm-hmm. a, another ethnicity mm-hmm. then there too uh, massacres uh, mm-hmm. will occur and we can find that right up to the 20th century basically mm-hmm. so so Philip let's turn to the journal for for a moment or maybe more than a moment and and just for for some of our listeners who are are not professional academics may not be uh, uh, familiar with this. The Journal of Genocide Research is one of the preeminent journals in the field. It's a quarterly. It, uh, for over a decade, has been devoted to examining the history of genocide and mass killings in, in, from a multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary perspective. So historians and political scientists and sociologists and so on will all publish in this. Uh, and I think it's a, quite a wonderful research and many or even all of the articles are, are very valuable, not just for academics, but for others. So, so Philip, talk a little bit about what you wanted to accomplish with this particular special issue. It was it was interesting because it was the editors of the journal who approached us uh, to do a issue oh. on uh, massacre. They'd heard about our conference, um, and because Lyndall and I are both 18th century specialists, and because we're working on a larger comparative history of 
uh, massacre and colonial violence at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th centuries that encompasses Australia, uh, Europe under the French occupation, South Africa and uh, North America, uh, we were arguing that this period between say, 1780 right through to the 1820s and 30s appears to be a watershed moment in the history of colonization and in the history of uh, violent interaction between occupiers and occupied or between colonizers and the colonized, if you like. It seems a little strange that I include uh, Europe in that definition at the time, but I'm looking at the French occupation of Europe as though it were a colonizing, an act of colonization in mm -hmm. effect, even though it was mm -hmm. an occupation army, so therefore uh, different to the settler societies that existed in South Africa, North America, and, and in Australia at the time. Um, we think that it's this. I, I guess this is we're at the cusp of the modern here. So something is happening, and and it's the French Revolution and the American Revolution up to a certain point in North America that shifts the dynamic in North America, as I'm sure most of your listeners will be aware. It's it's the uh, revolution that opens up uh, the West to uh, greater colonization and and greater settlement. And in the rest of the world, it's the British Empire that really starts to take off with its defeat of France during the Napoleonic Wars. So we were trying to figure out whether there was anything different happening in this colonizing process that resulted from these wars or whether there was pretty much the same thing going on as occurred in previous uh, centuries. And uh, I'm not entirely sure myself yet. Lindell has has more <laughs> has firmer views on what's happening than I do. Um, but there does seem to to be a difference, not so much in the act of killing itself, which has gone on forever and a day, as we know, but at least in the types of reasons that are given to justify the killings. And I think that's the shift uh, that. We've, we're looking to, and we're looking to explain. Perhaps I could uh, uh, add to some news, uh, other thoughts to that. I'm very mm -hmm. interested in the fact that it is during this period that the British uh, are attempting to establish a new empire following the loss of the American colonies. And they're going to parts of the world which, are, which do not automatically produce the great riches of India or the, or the riches of, that even that came from North America. They're going to, to lands which are less productive, which are further away from the centre, from London, uh, and which where they're less understanding or have less knowledge of what the Indigenous peoples are doing. And I think that they're taking greater risks to secure the land and they're also very anxious to, uh, they're much more aware of France as, uh, as their enemy and that they're prepared to um, deploy greater military, greater numbers of military forces to secure these places, whether it's in South Africa or whether it's in uh, Australia, and that, they're, uh, the, that it sort of is driven more by a fear of the French rather than a fear of the Indigenous peoples. And I think that they're kind of uh, going into a bit of overkill in some ways to secure the land. And they're prepared to use the strategies that they would, have de would deploy against the European enemy rather than the indigenous other to secure that. So it's a, a kind of a bit of an overkill in terms of technology to do that. I started out life, professional life anyway, um, as a Habsburg historian. And so I'm mm. quite comfortable with the notion of Europe as a, as a continent of empires and, and, and colonies. Uh, and, and Lindell, you, 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 you suggested one way in which these experiences intertwine and influence each other is 
recognizing that that you're kind of in the middle. This represents a midpoint in your research or perhaps a beginning point. I don't know. But to what extent are the kinds of behaviors and motivations and and strat or tactics, I suppose, used on the continent, to what extent do they resemble those used in the colonies? Uh, and I'll just ask Philip to answer this little start, started this conversation. Philip, can you expand on that? Sure. Mm. Well, well we've, we've certainly discovered that there's um, a, an exchange of personnel from one mm-hmm. continent to another. Yeah. So that the British who fought against the French in Spain, and I have to point out that the mm. British actually were responsible for some of the worst uh, massacres against civilians in Spain at the time, it wasn't only the French who committed the massacres, um, that they often then, after the Napoleonic Wars, ended up in Australia or uh, in uh, India, for example, where they brought the same experiences uh, with them and treated the indigenous peoples in those countries in much the same way as they had treated the Spanish. And the same can be said for the French. Those French officers who were involved in conquering Europe and often committed uh, atrocities against civilian populations uh, lived on and were also involved in the French uh, colonization of North Africa in the 1830s and 40s where the same methods were used against the Arab populations there and people at the time, politicians, French politicians at the time, spoke about a war of of extermination against uh, the Arabs of North Africa at the time. So there, there is that exchange of personnel. And some, I have to say also that some of these people ended up in South America during the mm-hmm. wars of liberation in the 1820s. So there was, it, it was a much more global exchange of uh, imperial uh, personnel than possibly we have realised until late. And they brought with them not only their own ideas and experiences, but I guess particular methods that they applied regardless of the country they were in. Perhaps I could continue on with that from the British uh, point of view, is that uh, we find in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars, which Britain believed that it had won, that it began to employ the similar tactics of mass land armies in places like India as they pushed north into Afghanistan in the first Afghan wars in the early 1840s, uh, a mass British army led by uh, veterans of, of Waterloo and other co- uh, conflicts in the Napoleonic Wars in this belief that since they had won against Napoleon, they would certainly win against the Afghans. So the first Afghan war, which is an unmitigated disaster and most of the British are slaughtered. Nevertheless, they are employing the same techniques. They're led by some of the same generals who had fought in Spain and at Waterloo. And the shock of loss is uh, of losing that war, which took them 100 years to acknowledge that they had lost, is uh, quite strong. And closer to home to Australia, the first New Zealand wars in the 1840s, which the Maori won, but were conducted uh, by the British, again by British officers who had fought in the Napoleonic Wars, uh, with regiments that had fought in the Napoleonic Wars, and the belief that they could quickly mow down uh, the the indigenous other, except in this case, the indigenous other were equally well armed and uh, were man- uh, certainly defeated them. So I think that the Napoleonic Napoleonic Wars has different impacts um, uh, in the the race for a new new colonial empires in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars that doesn't really change until the Crimean War of the mid-1850s when we get a new generation of uh, army officers coming in and new armaments emerging as well. The the arms that were used in the 1820s, 30s and 40s are exactly the same as those that were used in the later period of the Napoleonic Wars. So in that sense, it's an aftermath. 
I think it's, it, I'm not sure I've got the name of the author. It's David Bell, correct? Who who writes his book, I don't know when it came out. I know I read it a couple years ago. Is it The First Total War, I think it's called? That's right. Writing yeah. about the French. Yeah. And, and, and what I got from that and what I hear from, from you and, and what I get from reading this is that this period of the French Revolution and, and, and the Napoleonic Wars needs to be understood differently than the kind of traditional focus on the, uh, on the crowd in Paris and the guillotines and the terror, that it is a far more kind of, I don't know if revolutionary is the right word, but far more significant um, global phenomenon and yeah. represents a far significant rupture from from the previous period. Is 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 that right? I, I think so, and I think from memory, uh, David Bell is arguing that it's uh, ideology that is the uh, mm. uh, motivator that can help us explain the um, excess uh, violence that takes place uh, during this period, and he argues no longer about simply defeating. Uh, an enemy on the battlefield. It's about entirely eliminating the enemy as a political threat altogether. And it's that motivation which uh, he says helps explain why the wars were so uh, bloody and brutal. I'm not sure if I entirely agree uh, with uh, David Bell, because if you look at earlier periods of European history, the Thirty Years' War, for example, mm. or even earlier the wars of uh, religion, or um, uh, uh, or um, the French incursion into the Palatinate under Louis the Fourteenth. Uh, we see um, also a brutal treatment of uh, civilians. So I'm not entirely sure whether ideology can explain, can help us explain or understand uh, why massacres and mass killings occur at particular periods. And this is this is the dilemma that I, that perhaps Lindell has also uh, faced this with this particular dilemma, and that's explaining why. Uh, massacres occur at any particular time, um, and I, we have realised that the the reasons given to justify mass killings and massacre um, have changed over time from religious and now becoming more secular and political and ideological into the 19th century, but that doesn't help us understand the actual dynamics of killing itself, which fundamentally remain the same. You have to shoot someone up first. You have, to, you have yeah. to stab someone with a sword or a bayonet in order to, to eliminate the other. What's going on in the mind of the perpetrator when that happens? Are they simply automatons that obey orders or is there something much more intimate going on? Um, those, are, those are questions we're still grappling with, I think. One last question about the books uh, and the journal together, uh, and and that is primarily, if not exclusively, these essays are Western in focus. They they of course happen in across the world as as the West kind of classically defined encounters other civilizations. Uh, but there's nothing here about Africa before imperial, or very little about Africa here before imperialism. There's little about Native Americans before contact with the West. Um, and I'm just not very familiar with this. Are are there people studying that the massacre in those settings? I think there are, but the, the problem for historians are sources. Yeah, and we're often dealing with civilizations that don't have um, a, a, a written legacy, so it's extremely difficult to untap the oral sources. And I know in some uh, civilizations that there is an oral tradition that's passed down from one generation to the next, but it's it's very difficult for historians coming in from the outside to tap into those traditions and to understand them. There are a number of um, um, indigenous scholars around. There is, for example, uh, Barbara Mann at the University of Toledo in uh, in your country, who's working mm-hmm. on a massacre from a Native American uh, perspective. Hmm. Um, and uh, uh, there are there are others around uh, as well. So there is now 
uh, increasing in Australia as well. I think mm. there are Aboriginal scholars working on mm. um, the massacres. There is now an attempt not only to look at massacre, especially colonial mm. massacre from you know the European perspective, but also to try and understand what's happening uh, you know, from the other side. Um, it's a new field and we hope that our work will encourage uh, scholars from other areas to uh, you know to consider the issue uh, um, we haven't looked at uh, anything about haven't looked at any incidents of massacre for example in Asia uh, or in China or in India all those places we we would like to hope that perhaps the idea will uh, take off in those countries and perhaps uh, draw together other work that may have been done it does appear that in some indigenous societies the concept of massacre is very rare but in other indigenous societies mm. it was not so uncommon we don't feel we have the expertise to venture down that road at the moment we do know that some archaeologists have been excavating massacre sites belonging to um, other societies and other cultures so perhaps over time we'll, we will be able to begin to draw on some of that work and to bring it together I think Philip and I would agree that we're simply at the beginning of this of this journey and we're and we have a long way to go and I'm wondering also whether there is a difference here in cultural um, yes. baggage, if you like. I mean, most of what we know about massacre it doesn't come from official sources, but comes mm, yeah. from witness testimonies that are written uh, often many years after the event, mm. either in journals or memoirs or mm. diaries and so on and so on. And I guess we could these are, these are called ego documents. And if we're dealing with Asian societies, especially pre-modern ones, then we don't come across the same kinds of sources. There aren't, there aren't memoirs in Japan, mm. for example, before the 20th century because mm. there's no sense of an individual identity outside of mm. the collective. So mm. it's extremely difficult in those, uh, in those civilizations and societies to uh, figure out what's happened in the same way that we would in our Western civilizations, I guess. That's, that, that's an explanation. I don't know if it's, it's if if uh, it's a particularly valid one. So. <laughs> well, it does sound like a hard problem, but I hope somebody sets their mind to it because I think you've done a great job of blazing the trail, and I hope people follow yeah. it. And yeah. I thank you so much for your time. We're about out of time. I have one more question to ask, and it's the kind of traditional ending question for these interviews. And 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 you've hinted at this before, but I'll ask Lyndall to start and just say a little bit about what you're working on now. Um, I've moved from the Napoleonic, post-Napoleonic era more into the mid-19th century mm. and again I'm working in a more transcolonial way of looking at uh, expanding colonial frontiers. Uh, I'm now beginning to work with some scholars who've um, been doing some research on the Canadian uh, colonial frontier mm. which was not included in either the book or the journal and uh, I was under the impression that there had been very little of this kind of uh, massacre violence in uh, Canada, but we're beginning to realise that there were some important aspects that have that need to be drawn out. I'm now beginning to work more with colleagues from New Zealand, and we're expanding our work with our colleagues in South Africa. So I'm still involved more in white settler societies, uh, but moving into what we now call the long 19th century. Hmm. And now I've got too many projects on at the same time. <laughs> and, but the, um, well, this is the third volume of the Napoleon biography, which I, I have to complete uh, sometime in the next uh, hundred years or so. Um, I'm also working on the, a book, which I've tentatively dubbed Everyday War, which uh, looks at the Napoleonic uh, Wars again, but from a completely different perspective this time, and that is from the ground up. I want to see how the wars actually impacted on civilian societies hmm. in most uh, European countries or occupied by the French. We know very little about what happened to civilians during these wars. 
Um, and both of these projects, Lindell's and mine, are part of, we've founded a Centre for the History of Life at the University of Newcastle. So we're undertaking a number of large projects that fall within that umbrella, the history of violence and massacre mm-hmm. is, is, is mm-hmm. part of a much larger approach to the history of violence now both uh, grappling with over in the modern period. We're, we're limiting, we're not as ambitious as we should be. We're only limiting ourselves to the modern period rather than going from <laughs> prehistory to the present day. <laughs> well, I... Uh... I look forward to those coming out, and I hope that uh, when they do, that you'll be willing to come on the show again. And for those listeners who haven't read Philip's biography of Napoleon, you'll understand when you pick it up why it's such a challenge. It is comprehensive is the word I'm going to use in addition to wonderful, but uh, it might take him a while to finish that third volume. But So thank you very much for being with us, and um, hopefully we'll talk to you again. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. You've been listening to an interview with Philip Dwyer and Lindahl Ryan, editors of both the new volume, Theaters of Violence, Massacre, Mass Killing, and Atrocity Throughout History, and a special issue of the Journal of Genocide Research. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time when I'll interview Adam Jones about his new collection, The Scourge of Genocide, Essays and Reflections. Until then, I hope you have a great month.